So today, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And we are going to be looking at verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 10. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to that now. First John chapter 2, verse 28, I'm going to read through chapter 3, verse 10, and I'm reading from the ESV. It says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who the children of God are and who the children of are who, who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Amen. So John has summed up an idea that he's going to repeat over and over again throughout this book. When we were in our GCC this week, I said, First John, uh, it, he kind of circles the drain a number of times on a, a couple different concepts. And one of those concepts is that believers who trust in God through the work of Jesus are secure. He reminds us that the Spirit confirms that those who are in the Father through the Son are promised eternal life. And he's going to make another pass at these ideas in chapter 3. But before we get there, we get this little small section in chapter 2 that goes into chapter 3. We're in chapter 2, verse 28. John refers to his readers as little children. And he reminds the little children to abide in him while practicing righteousness in order to show that they are indeed born of Jesus, born of him. In Greek, the word little children in English, as it shows up in your Bible, the Greek word is technion. It means uh, uh, a term that a teacher could use to refer to a student, almost as a term of endearment. And so I like the way that he uses that phrase, little children or technion in Greek, and he refers to them as practicing because I think we can all relate to practicing something as children. When you were a child, you probably saw something on TV or heard about something that sounded fun, and it looked a lot of fun, and you decided to practice it. 
Maybe it was an instrument. Maybe it was roller skating. Maybe it was learning to bake, something that looks fun. But then the hard lesson we find out as children is that things that look fun often take a lot of work. I remember uh, riding bikes was one that I was big into when I was a kid. I would watch people on TV roll up and down ramps and make these cool jumps and spin around. And I thought, wow, that's cool. I want to try that. And I got this nice stunt bike. And I remember riding my bike one day, and I fell off and uh, landed on the, the pavement with my wrist like this. Compound fracture broke both the bones of my wrist. Still have a big scar to this day. So uh, you learn the lessons the hard way, right? That the things that you see on TV that look fun and they're just ramping and jumping, it looks so easy, and you try it yourself, it's like, wow, that is hard. And as a kid, you learn some hard lessons. And the phrase I remember that I used to hear all the time when I was a kid growing up was like, well, don't give up. You know, those of you that have kids that played that little recorder instrument because they were learning to play an instrument for the first time, uh, you probably suffered through that too, right? You want to play the trumpet, and you, it's like, all right, we'll give you this little recorder, and it sounds, sounds terrible. <laughs> but the phrase you tell them, and the phrase that I heard all the time growing up, because my brother's a musician, um, was uh, practice makes perfect, right? Keep practicing, keep working at it, and one day you'll be able to achieve what you want. While I think that is a true idea, and it's a valuable concept, I think our understanding of this idea of practice makes perfect can actually distort our ability to understand what John is trying to get at in this passage. Over and over, John makes statements that are good end goals for Christians in the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, like uh, verse 28, right, that we'll not shrink back from Jesus at his coming. Verse 2, the righteous will see Jesus as he is. Verse 3, the righteous are pure. Verse 6, the righteous abide in him and don't keep on sinning. All these statements I could say relate to or are anchored in a core concept called righteousness. But the way to become righteous, according to John, I think is different than what I just talked about, that idea of practice makes perfect. Like when you're a kid, you just practice at something, and in a sense, you can work your way into the lifestyle or the end goal that you want. The way we get to the righteousness that John's describing is different. So what I want us to do tonight is look at what John calls us to even before we try to become righteous. And then I want to draw out some examples of the righteousness that John is talking about in this passage. And then I'll give us some practicals on how we can actually achieve the righteousness that John has in mind. So first and foremost, what we're called to before we can even think about righteousness. In the first few verses, John refers to his readers as little children. Again, that phrase, technion. That's not because he's writing to actual children, but he's reminding his audience, I believe, something what Jesus taught. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4, Jesus says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, according to Jesus, is a child. Now the word Jesus uses here is pation, meaning an actual child. So he's being a bit more literal. And he's giving us an example saying, if you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you need to enter like one of these pations, one of these little children. And if you think of that, because this is a literal phrase here he's using, children can't provide for themselves, 
Children can't figure life out. Children need protection. And Jesus is saying, unless you come to me like that, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is right before his disciples asked him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus flips their paradigm and says, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is not what you accomplish, how much money you have, how much you can do for me. It's you coming to me, realizing your need for me, your dependence, your inability to guide or figure things out yourself. Jesus says the people that embrace that are the greatest in the kingdom. So John is reminding his readers as we start what it means to be great and what it means to truly stand before Jesus and enter into the kingdom of heaven. Remember that you enter as a child and live from that place. Uh, recently, I've been doing a lot of traveling uh, for work and then some personal travel as well, and it's led to the last few weeks being quite a hectic schedule for me. Um, there were days where I didn't get a lot of sleep and then had to get up and do a full day's worth of travel, multiple flights or work meetings or uh, personal things we were dealing with. And when those long days of travel were beginning to add up, I was getting less and less sleep and having longer and longer days. And so naturally, what, that, what took a hit during that time was my prayer and Bible reading time. Normally, I, I pray and I read in the morning. And so uh, being discouraged over the last few weeks, I had one night where I was like, okay, I can get a good night's sleep, I'm gonna to go to bed early, I'm gonna to try to get a full night's worth of rest, and I'm gonna wake up tomorrow morning, and I'm gonna get back to my prayer and Bible reading time, I'm gonna have a good, solid time with the Lord, and I'm gonna really get back to where I was. And so I did that. Went to sleep, woke up bright and early, got in the Word, and uh, got ready to pray, and I'm at risk saying this. I know this only happens to me, so please bear with me, but I'll go ahead and share it with you. I went to pray, and I fell asleep. And I went to pray again, and I fell asleep again. Multiple times, I'm like, just nodding off, falling asleep, like, ah, oh, I gotta wake up. And afterwards, after that kind of roundabout, like trying to pray, falling asleep, trying to play, falling asleep, I felt a lot of shame. I was like, man, I can't even like pray. And I'm here sleeping on the Lord, trying to be devoted to him, and I can't keep myself awake. And then I remember Jesus's words in this passage that we're little children, and that we come to Jesus like little children with nothing to offer him. Now parents, especially new parents, you probably have had that moment where you've had your child coming to you willingly, falling asleep in your arms. You cherish those moments, I would imagine. And so does God when we approach him like little children. I don't think any of you that have little children have held that child in your arms and they've crawled and sat in your arms and fell asleep and you're rocking them and you think, you gotta start doing some chores or something. You gotta start paying some bills. You're not, make, dragging, you're not, you're not making your worth around here. You, you cherish those moments when the child comes to you and just sits and is with you. And the Lord cherishes those moments with us. Now, some of you are contrarians and you're thinking about the disciples falling asleep on Jesus before he went to the cross. And I, when I was thinking about that, I was like, yeah, that is true. Jesus did uh, voice his disagreement with the disciples falling asleep on him, but that was a different time, right? He told them directly to pray for him, and they fell asleep on him. And what I found interesting about that, though, is I'm, even as my mind went there, they fell asleep on him, and still, after falling asleep on him, what did he do for them? He died. He still laid his life down, willingly. So even after the disciples, in the clearer example in Scripture, when they 
disobey Jesus' direct command to pray for him and they fell asleep on him, he lays down his life for him, for them. And I think that's very fitting for us too. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That should humble us. That should make it easy for us to enter into the presence of God. And remember, we enter into the presence of God like little children. So note where, where John starts, how we become righteous. We humble ourselves. We are little children. And the way he makes this little children analogy practical is a few different things, right? He doesn't say, you know, if you want to be righteous, go to seminary or read these books or go on a mission trip or serve your community in this way. It's to humble yourself and become like a child. And practically, like I said, I think that shows up in three different ways in the beginning of this passage. Three words. One, abide. Two, know. And three, see. Let's go back to the passage. First of all, looking at verse 28. Now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him at his coming. The word abide is uh, not something we use a lot today, but it means to, to remain in, to stay in, or to, to be with someone or something. So simply put, John is telling his readers, stay near Jesus. Even if Jesus is not physically there, conduct yourself as if he were, meaning follow the things that he taught you. Seek to be in his presence live in ways that honor him. So that when he appears, and this was an important thing to say at that time because there was uh, a teaching floating around that Jesus was a spirit or a ghost or not an actual physical body who appeared. And John is emphasizing when he appears, like he did once before, when he appears, you won't feel shame. There's a practicalness to that because Jesus is, for us, going to appear one day. So think of it again like you're a child and your parents go off somewhere, John is saying, follow the rules. Live like your parents are still there. And don't think that you can break all the rules while your parents aren't there, even though they are, right? Jesus is with us in spirit. The Holy Spirit is with us. But don't conduct yourself in ways that your parents aren't there and think you can get away with it. So if your parents don't let you run in the house, when they leave, don't run in the house. If your parents don't let you yell, when they leave, don't yell. Same thing here. Keep the house in order so that when Jesus comes back, we don't feel shame like we've been misbehaving ourselves. Practically, the second thing, John tells the audience, in order to be righteous, you have to know that he, and the he is Jesus, you have to know that Jesus is righteous. Now, I've been using this word righteousness a lot, and a simple definition of it is just someone who's moral, or someone who's upstanding, someone who holds up a standard. And a theme throughout the Bible, from Genesis all through the New Testament, is that no one is righteous, not one person. And so what John is calling his readers to remember is that Jesus is not just another one of those good people that you read about in the Old Testament who does some really good things, but also has flaws, right? Like David or Solomon or Samson or Abraham or Nehemiah. John is telling his readers, Jesus is not one of those Old Testament characters who does good things, but you read them and you're like, oh, that was not the greatest, right? Not the best way to go out. John is saying that, remember, that no one, is right, no one is righteous, no, not one, does not apply to Jesus because he's not like anyone that came before him. We can abide in him because we know that he's righteous. And lastly, if we know that he's righteous, we're called to see or behold. I, like, I actually like that word better in some of the translations. Some of your words, uh, translations say, behold, 
the love that the Father has for us that we should be called children of God. Behold. It doesn't say believe. It doesn't say study. It doesn't say understand. It says behold. Behold what love that the Father has for us. There were times during Jesus' ministry where he would point to things in nature and use that as a worry for his followers to be reminded of the love that God has for him. It comes out real clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this. There we go. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? Consider how the lilies of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon, in all of his glory, was adorned as one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So it's a very Christian thing to birdwatch. I like birdwatching, so I'm just going to throw that in there. Look at the birds. Jesus is telling his followers, look at the birds, look at the lilies of the field, observe the beauty of what you're seeing, and think that the God who created that, the beauty in the flowers, the complexity of the birds, birds are amazing. If you like follow and figure out which ones are which and when they fly in and what they do and what their patterns are, birds are very particular creatures, so it's fun to get to know them. But he's saying, think of those things and remember the love that the Father has for you those everyday things in life, like when you go on a walk like you can right now and see the beauty of the leaves changing, or when you observe the breathtaking sunsets that happen every now and then where the whole sky is orange. Be reminded of that. See the beauty of that and remember the love that the Father has for you, that the God who created that desires to know you and desires to be with you and will be with you for all of eternity if you're in Christ. Remember the love that the Father has for you. So, when you go to pray and you fall asleep, and you think, yeah, I'm, I'm not where I should be right now, we can still behold the love that the Father has for us. Because whether you prayed for three hours and it was amazing, or whether you tried to pray and you fell asleep, the sun still came up on you. You're still breathing his air. The birds are still outside, and you can observe them. And remember the love that the Father has for you. So John reminds his audience to approach God like little children. Abide in him, know he is righteous, and behold the great love that he has for you. Abide, know, behold. I think this is important because what we believe about God determines how we behave. There's a parable where Jesus talks about people who were given talents from a master. And there are some who take their talents, whoops, there we go, and invest them and get a profit and get a return. And there's one who buries their talent. And this is what that servant said. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here it is. Have what is yours. And the master of the story goes on to talk about how he's not happy with that servant and throws him out into weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the idea here is the servant who thought that the master was a harsh man 
The servant who thought that the master was just like another Old Testament person who you know, had some good things but also had some flaws, that was the servant who didn't try anything. And so his behavior was driven by a belief that his master was a harsh man. So if we don't behold, know, and abide with Jesus, it shouldn't be a surprise to us when our behavior is in fear and in shame and not walking in the righteousness that he's called us to. So that's why it's important before we even think about righteousness, we have to remember to behold him, to see him for who he truly is, and to abide with him. Now there are many examples of righteousness in this passage that we're called to. For example, verse 28, let me go back to it. There we go. Verse 28, the righteous will see Jesus and not be ashamed at his coming. Verse 2, the righteous will see Jesus as he is. Verse 3, the righteous are pure. Verse 6, the righteous abide in him and do not keep on sinning. So there are lots of examples of what righteousness is and the righteousness that we're called to, what it looks like. But I want to caution you that the way to become or the way to walk in that righteousness is not to try on your own not to be ashamed of Jesus' coming or to try on your own to be pure or to try on your own to stop sinning. This is where our ingrained ideas about practice making perfect could work against us. So if you work hard enough at something, you can become better at it. That's oftentimes how we believe. But if you try that with sin in and of yourself, you'll continue to go in circles. Whether it's lust or pride or greed or anger, whatever the sin is, maybe you've been there before. You think, I'll never get angry again. I've seen the results of it in my life. I need to stop. I'm going to stop. Or I'm never going to lust again. Or I'm never going to be prideful again. And 24 hours later, what do you find yourself doing? The same thing. So sin is not something we can just naturally learn to do. Like someone, if they try hard enough, can learn to roller skate or ride a bike or play an instrument. We don't just naturally grow out of our sin nature. This is where we need to heed John's word and look at becoming righteous the way that he instructs us to become righteous. Because in this life, we won't achieve the righteousness that John is describing on our own. For Christians, practice does not make perfect, but perfect makes practice. So let me explain. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Notice the phrase, makes a practice of, keeps on sinning. So the idea here is not, uh, you've never seen or known him if you sin at all, period, which would be all of us. We would all have to raise our hand if we asked, took a poll and said who has sinned at any time, point in time. The idea here is that if you make a practice, if you make a lifestyle, if you sin without regard and you sin over and over and over again and you don't care about the consequences, you don't even try to repent. If that's your lifestyle, then it's possible you don't know him. Now, there's a difference between living a lifestyle of rebellion, sin, not giving a care about anything, about what anybody thinks of what the Bible says. There's a difference between that and growing in Christ. And the more you grow in Christ, the more you find out, oh, that's sinful. That motive is sinful, or that thing is sinful, and I want to get that out of my life. And I need to keep on repenting and keep on turning from sin. So you're constantly confronted with sin, 
but it's not because you refuse to walk away from your sin. It's because as you mature, you find out that there are things in life and there are motives inside you and things inside you that aren't like Jesus and you want to get rid of them. There is a fine line between that sin without regard lifestyle and the lifestyle where actually the spirit is just working in you and convicting you of sin and you're growing and you're repenting of it. How do you know the difference between those two? This is why it's important to be connected to a local church. Because you can have people around you who can encourage you, who can see and call out in you and encourage you and say that it looks like you are winning the fight against sin. You are becoming more mature, more kind, more patient, more loving, more generous. You are growing and becoming more like Christ. And in doing that, you're confronting sin, but behind that is growth. It's not you just refusing to deal with the things in your life and being stuck. There are two things that, it, this, this, uh, in verse 8 especially, it talks about how Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan. I think there are two works, there are two lies that are very prevalent today that, that Jesus came to destroy. The first is a lie to people who are growing in Christ, whom Satan wants to discourage and say, well, you're always dealing with sin, so it seems like you're not actually growing, you're just stuck in Christ, or you're just stuck, you might as well give up, right? To discourage people who are growing, that's one of the lies that Satan wants to tell people is the people who are growing, you're not growing, you're just stuck in sin and you should just give up. The other lie that Satan wants people to believe are people who are not growing in sin, or people who are not growing, people who are stagnant, but they're not around other believers and no one can call out the behaviors in life that are sinful. And so there's also a false confidence that Satan wants to give to people who aren't connected to a local church and who just, you know, have read a Bible and say they would believe in Jesus, but aren't at all dealing with their sin and aren't repenting. Both of these things can happen really easily when you're not connected to a local church. Which is why we read at the beginning, Hebrews 3.13, that we should exhort one another as long as it is called today. What's today called? Today. Today, what's tomorrow gonna be called? Today. That means we should encourage each other. Because this idea, especially as we grow in Christ and have to deal with our sin, we get discouraged. It gets frustrating because you're having to repent and ask for forgiveness for the same things it feels like over and over and over again. And there's nothing more that the enemy would like with to get people like that who are growing and repenting to be discouraged. To feel like, man, I, I got angry again. I guess I'm not a Christian. And the enemy, when those people are alone, loves to encourage them and tell them, yeah, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you should just give up. The enemy loves to encourage people like that, which is why Hebrews 3.13 is so important. Because another believer, another person can speak into your life and say, I'm really encouraged by what I see in your life. I think you are growing. You are becoming more patient, more kind, more loving. So a local community is what can help us, uh, prevent us from making a practice of sin. Like I said, verse eight uh, talks about how Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan. And discouragement amongst believers is one of those things that practically happens in the church when we can call out the lies that Satan is telling people. That's one of the ways that practically Jesus destroys the works of the enemy. Now let's look at the opposite in verse seven when it comes to righteousness. Whoops, this way. There we go. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So how do I know that I'm in him? Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. It does not say practice righteousness until you become perfect like him. It says, it does not say uh, practice righteousness until you become perfect like him. 
it does not say, in a sense, practice until you become perfect. It says that practicing righteousness, just by that itself, just by trying, you're showing that you have evidence that you've received his perfect record. You know what it's called when you practice righteousness and fail? Sin. We try to hit a standard and we fall short. So the question is not whether or not believers will sin. We will sin. The question is, what will we make a practice of? Will we get back on the horse and continue to try to live and be like Christ? Or will we just give up and say, well, I'm going to just stay in my sin? Verse 8 continues the idea and the concept. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. So no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Not that they don't sin, but they cannot make a practice of sinning, because God's spirit abides in him. That's, we have this idea of conviction. John 16, 8 talks about one of the ministries and works of the Holy Spirit is to convict the believer of sin. So when you sin, or when someone in church maybe calls you out in, in, in humility, says that there may be something in your life that appears to be sinful, and you feel that conviction, regardless of whether or not you actually are going to face consequences, that's a sign that the Spirit is working in you. That you want to turn from sin because it's sin, and not just because you feel like you may face a consequence. That's a sign that the Spirit is abiding and working in you. And that's a good thing. There are a lot of things in us that are sin that the Spirit can convict us of. That's a, a good, healthy sign for a believer. But another one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to remind us that we're his children. Romans 8, by his Spirit, we call out Abba, Father. We're reminded that he, we are his children. So as a believer, right along with conviction of sin, we also are given a Spirit that allows us to remember things like verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. I, in essence, we will still sin. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. I remember when I first started playing sports, um, I had a coach when I was in high school who said, you know, if you're an athlete, you need to be hydrated, and you need to only hydrate yourself with, with good things. Um, if you drink sugary drinks like soda and juice and uh, all the, like, the... Um, soft drinks out there, it's going to dehydrate you. So I only want you guys drinking water. And the problem for me at the time was I drank Dr. Pepper like it was water. But when I heard that, I was like, okay, I guess I'm only drinking water. In my non-gospel mind, I had an identity that I was given, which is like, uh, I'm playing sports now, I'm an athlete. I guess that means I only drink water. And from that day on, I pretty much only drank water. Um, it wasn't that I felt shame or felt like I had some, uh, you know, deep-seated wrongness in me if I didn't drink water, but it was the identity. It was, I am this, and therefore, I'm called to these things. And so as believers, it's the same with us. We are in Christ. We have an identity that calls us to something higher above the things that we may do on a daily basis. So when we sin, it's not that it is... Um, uh, a sign that we're not believers, it is a sign that we are living not in line with our design and not in line with what we're called to. And that's what John is getting at. We are God's children now, and what we are has not yet been revealed. I love where this ends because 
the continuing practice of righteousness does not give us perfection. But what it does give us is evidence. Verse 10, by this, it is evident who the children of God are and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So all we're looking for in this life is evidence. Some of you are in the room and you're perfectionist, and it's hard to hear this. And when you sin, the perfectionism in you thinks, I guess I'm not a believer because I just keep on sinning. But the passage does not say, by this we know who the children of God are, they're perfectly nice, or they're perfectly humble, or they're perfectly wise or perfectly generous. All those are things we should aspire to. We should aspire to be wise and generous and kind. But what makes us children of God is the humility to remember that our kindness, our wisdom, our generosity will never match that of Jesus. So we don't seek perfection, we seek practice. So struggling with sin, if you're a believer in here tonight, struggling with sin, take heart, allow that struggle to bring you back to God and bring you back to childlike faith. We should recognize and sin should be the thing that allows us to recognize our need for him. I think it's fitting that it ends here because this is where we can begin to, begin to make this practical as well. Because for all of us, if I say who struggles with sin, we could all probably raise our hand and say all of us, and of course it would be in different ways and at different times and in different measures. But all of us could say that we are struggling with sin. And so the question we have, or the way we can make this practical, the question I would have for us is, who are we encouraging right now? Hebrews 3.13 says we should encourage one another as long as it is called today. Realize that your brother, that your sister, that your person that you're sitting with here, the person that you see at your GCC every week, or the person that you see in the foundry with the men's group, or you see at the Grove and women's group, they're struggling with sin just like you are. And they need encouragement just like you do. So just a simple way that we could all make this message practical. I'd encourage you just to take some time this week, pray, if you fall asleep, don't be discouraged. Just wake yourself up. Try to pray again. Ask God who you should encourage this week. I guarantee you someone will come to mind. And then just give them a call, send them a text, pull them aside at church, pull them aside at GCC, and encourage them. Now, encouragement is a, is a vague term uh, sometimes. It means encourage. It means to impart courage to someone. And so as believers, we can encourage people in one of two ways. One is to say, hey, I see you growing in this area, and I just want to let you know I'm really encouraged, and I think that's great that you're becoming more kind, more generous. You're becoming a better father, better husband, better church member. I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged that we have people in the church membership class. I'm encouraged by all of you. Thank you. That's my homework for this week. I'm just, <laughs> I'll, I'll talk with more people. I'll encourage more people. But seriously, I'm encouraged when I see people coming to church membership class. That encourages me. So one way we can encourage people is just to call out the things that we appreciate about them. Another way to encourage people is more of an exhortation is to say, and this is something you can do in a spirit of humility, um, perhaps not in public, um, in, a, in a conversation that maybe you have between the two of you, say, hey, brother or sister, I see this in you, and I think this is sin. I just want to encourage you that you are more than this, and Jesus has called you to more than what you're living in right now. And if there's any way that I can help you or, or support you, I, I would love to see you repent from this. So encouragement can also mean 
calling people to who they are in Christ, which is not their sin. So ask God this week, just simple prayer, God, who should I encourage? Could be a brother, sister, family member, member of this church, but we all need it because we all are fighting against the deceitfulness of sin. We all are fighting against an enemy who is real and wants to see us not live in who we are and who we are to be revealed in Christ. So real practical this week, ask the Lord who in our community you can encourage. Exhortation, encouragement, it's all needed because the deceitfulness of sin is real. We're going to take communion, and I think communion is a fitting end to this because it's a reminder of what Jesus did for us, and it's something we all do together. Um, I want us to remember a couple things when we you take communion during this time. The first is the fight against sin is real, and the discouragement we all feel is real, and the slowness with which it can happen, the slowness with which we may feel that I'm still dealing with this thing, I'm still dealing with the same issue, I'm still dealing with this person maybe even, sometimes sin is between people. I just want to encourage you to stay in the fight. And the reason I want to encourage you to stay in the fight is not because if you just keep trying and keep trying and keep trying and keep trying and keep trying, one day you'll be perfect. I want to encourage you that Jesus and his righteousness is already something that you've received, his perfect righteousness. So receive his perfection during this communion time. Receive his per perfect record. And I want, us that, I want that to be what gives us the encouragement to continue to practice. Continue to try. Continue to probably fail. Continue to humble yourself. Repent. Seek God's face. Seek forgiveness. And encourage others to do the same. So we're going to take communion. We're going to sing a song to close. And I'm going to pray to, to close us out. After, and then we'll sing a song. So... Lord, we thank you for your perfect record. We thank you that your righteousness was given to us. We thank you that we don't have to, in and of ourselves, try to be perfect and that we can be gentle with ourselves. We can be gentle with other believers even because we are uh, not yet, what, what we are has not yet been revealed. We are each little children working out our salvation, trying to fight against sin, and that's hard. So Lord, just encourage us right now in this moment. Allow us to have patience with ourselves, patience with each other, uh, and steadfastness at the same time, Lord. A steadfastness that truly does want to see sin dealt with, that truly does want to live righteousness, but, but knows that we can't do that without being little children. We can't do that without realizing we need our Father, we need the Spirit to come alongside us and inside us and empower us and encourage us. So help us to be encouraged during this time to remember your body broken and your bloodshed and have that be the means by which we continue to walk and fight against sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.